I'm Michaela Pogner, Associate Editor of Stripped Hill Farmer. Welcome to this episode of the Stripped Hill Farmer podcast series. I encourage you to subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribing allows you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. Thanks to TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting this podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Beck's 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleaf, S-Y-M.com slash 2022. Like anything in farming, cover crops are not a one-size-fits-all model. Stephen Mursky, a research ecologist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service, helped develop the Cover Crop Decision Support Tool, which helps farmers quantify the economic and environmental impacts of cover crops. In today's episode of the Strip Hill Farmer podcast, Associate Editor Sarah Hill talks with Mursky about adapting covers with site-specific management, how growers can quantify the benefits of cover crops, how cover crop genetics have improved in the last decade, and much more. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity to be a part of your podcast. Well, to get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I've been uh, with uh, USDA Agricultural Research Service now for about the last 15 years. Uh, my, my formal training is sort of a background in, in agronomy, soil science, uh, uh, weed management, and, and that's largely what I do, right? Most of my research program is all focused around um, integrating, you know, you know, crop and soil management, um, and and trying to develop more uh, productive and sustainable cropping systems by mer- merging sustainable ag strategies that help with, you know, re- regenerative and resilient properties with uh, precision agriculture that allows for more site specific uh, management. And so that's sort of been a big progress, a, a, a big component of my research program, and. A lot of it is um, involved with really working in large teams. I collaborate with a lot of folks throughout uh, the region and, you know, and nationally to kind of develop these solutions so that we can sort of break down how climate and soil and management come together to to drive productivity and and the benefits we get from kind of a lot of our um, sustainable act strategies. Okay. So let's go ahead and, and jump right in to talking about cover crop research. So you lead more than 100 researchers in 29 different states um, in cover crop research projects. Can you give us an overview of what all of these different researchers are studying? Sure. Um, you know, this kind of a started out as a small group of us that were like in the East Coast, and we started to uh, develop like an, uh, a number of regional collaborations together that sort of morphed into developing sort of more of a uh, 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 a national uh, collaboration with an on-farm research network. And um, so we we moved a lot of this kinds of research questions that we we're doing on station to on-farm and working with farmers who are 
engaging cover crops in a whole host of ways, right? Some are working with mixtures, some are just using, you know, cereal covers, some are, are killing them late or killing them early. You know, there's a range of performance on all these farms. And we're sort of working with this farmer network to quantify um, how cover crops are influencing water and, and nitrogen and, and weeds, insects, disease, and, and a host of different other features like economics, and trying to put that all together to then build kind of insights uh, and models that result in decision support tools that we make available through web-based applications so that these tools are recommendation systems that allow growers to make decisions in the near to real time, all the way to you know more long-term planning around cover crops and management. And, and so the, the big effort that we do is, is primarily focused on short-term um, return on investment, right? We're, we're not setting up long-term cropping systems experiments on farm or on research stations in this big network that we're describing here um, that are doing the same practices on the same fields year in and year out. We're really looking at sort of mature cover croppers or people who have a long history of cover cropping on their uh, research farms uh, or on, on their production farms that are looking at the short-term implications of not cover cropping. So, you know, how does having the presence or absence of a cover crop in that field in any one year, year influence a host of sort of the annual management concerns around your water, your nitrogen needs, and so on. Um, and so we've been getting this large kind of network together through a bunch of different funding mechanisms that are both in the public sector uh, as well as in the private. We've developed a lot of private partnerships with um, agriculture business as well as um, technology companies and private on-farm networks and commodity boards to sort of come together in this collaboration around merging um, cover crops, which we sort of fit in, in, a, in a spectrum of different sustainable ag strategies into a more precision framework by really understanding how it works out across a wide range of climates and soils. Well, that's fantastic. So you kind of alluded to this in your previous response, but I, I'd like to pinpoint it a little more thoroughly. How can growers quantify the benefits offered by cover crops in their operations? Yeah, that is a great question. It's certainly the question of the day. And it's and and the the dissatisfying answer that a scientist often give is it depends. Right, it's it. All of the factors and the benefits of cover crops are very uh, regional and site specific. The benefits that uh, that a farmer might be targeting in the state of Iowa is often different than what they might be targeting in the state of Maryland or North Carolina. And and so um, a lot of the benefits that we get from cover crops are first and foremost uh, objective driven. Right, what is the objectives of the farmer? How are they managing the covers? What species did they select, that really drives um, the types of benefits they get. Um, for us, we've seen uh, plenty of, in the short term, real kind of like um, immediate benefits when it comes to providing some uh, weed suppression. Uh, certainly there's been you know a, a, a strong body of literature to support the benefits on recycling nutrients and preventing erosion. Uh, and I think where a lot of folks are interested in is, is, you know, how much nitrogen I get, you know, from their covers. And that really depends on their farming practices their systems their climates, their soils. Uh, and then of course the end old goal is yield. And the problem that we have so much with yield is, you know, they're, they're, 
yield is affected by so many factors, right? There's just so many production factors that affect corn yield in a given season or soybean yield for or whatever your crop is uh, that um, it's hard to equate one specific practice to a return on yield benefits annually. Um, we have certainly seen uh, in many cases uh, yield increases or no differences of yield and in some cases yield drags. And um, that's a very long complicated answer that depends on a lot of factors. Fair enough. So um, with all of this research happening, what are you finding are some of the current gaps in the knowledge that's out there about cover crop breeding? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, well, I think that that we're seeing a, a resurgence in cover crop breeding now that, that has not been in place for a while. There was a lot of work done historically on cover crop breeding, and there was a lot of materials developed um, a long time ago, but we, we've spent decades not seeing really big improvements in a lot of the material that we're using now that is sort of part of the mainstream available cover crop germplasm, and not a lot of that material has seen a lot of improvement. And so, um, when you know a mature breeding program that's been around for a very long time, uh, they you know it, there's a lot more resources that have to go into see modest improvements in the germplasm, whereas cover crops that have received a lot less genetic improvement for their for the targeted of interest, right? Like we have many cover crops that um, are used in certain cash crop applications, but they've been you know bred for that application, right? Versus if you're using it for cover, there's different traits that you're looking for. And so what's pretty exciting about cover crop breeding now is that just getting together, um, you know, small breeding programs, you know, uh, that can make big progress uh, in a short period of time, just because of the lack of attention that it's been given. And so I'm, I'm really proud to be part of this group. You know, we, I guess our, our name is, is evolved over the years. It's a cover crop breeding network or a national cover crop breeding network, but it's, it's a group of uh, public sector researchers and some private sector you know, seed and, and industries that have worked together um, around developing new cover crop germplasm. And this is a distributed network that's across all of uh, the U.S. And we're, we're regionally adapting cover crop lines um, for a number of traits of interest. And so I think it's a really exciting and growing area. We've been in place for close to seven years now, and we're, we're releasing certain cultivars of hairy vetch. We have a predominantly a major legume breeding program of hairy vetch, crimson clover, and winter pea. Uh, but we are also um, starting to do some uh, breeding in cereals, particularly cereal rye for increased allelopathy. So I, I think that, that just in a short period of time, we've already been able to see some big improvements in our uh, materials that we're hoping to release soon. So I, I think that it's a ripe area for lots of scientists, our breeders to get involved in, and, and really get more site-specific and regional in the, the germplasm that's out there. Okay, great. Well, that kind of answers the next question I had, which was, um, you know, talking about how cover crop genetics have maybe improved or changed in the past five to 10 years. Have there been many other advancements yeah, so the main target for us was to develop more winter hardiness in legumes to be able to see greater adoption of legume cover crops further north. Uh, you see a fair bit of, of use and adoption of legume cover crops in you know, the southern components of the U.S., but as you get further north, they're, they're really struggling to get integration for all the reasons, right? They're, they, they, they're not very winter hardy. They 
Um, you need to get them in earlier just to get good performance. And so there's a lot of constraints. So the main breeding program has been around developing winter hardiness. Uh, but then we also have some cover crops that we know farmers are concerned about. Um, the weediness of those cover crops like hairy vetch and how they have a hard seed and can persist in the seed bank. So we've been also um, screening material for soft seeded hairy vetch lines. Uh, we've explored hard and soft seeded uh, crimson clover lines. Um, and then there's been a big emphasis around disease resistance and winter pea. So those are the, the main traits in the, in the, in the, um, legumes. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the, the trait uh, that we're targeting with cereals is increased allelopathy. Okay. So um, has your research evaluated the impact of cover crops on herbicide resistance? Yeah, I, you see a lot of excitement in the um, herbicide resistant management community, uh, both from uh, the researchers, both from, uh, I think you'll see, you see a lot of incentivizing programs uh, to get folks to adopt cover crops for this purpose, right? Is that, that it's a real win in the short, with, a, with a big impact in the short term, right? Like you can, you know, you can make a big impact on a number of the weed species that um, are really problematic that are greatly affected by having cover crops uh, in the fields. You know, you know, both the cover crop when it's living so when a cover crop is living, that's certainly when it's most competitive against weeds. So certainly uh, if you're looking at a winter annual cover crop like cereal rye, uh, it, 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 it's uh, fall growth can be really impactful for biennial uh, weeds or problematic weeds like um, uh, Kaniza, you know, will, will be impacted by having cereal rye out there. Uh, but then also, then when you kill that cover crop and leave it as a mulch in the field, we've seen big impacts on reducing weeds, making them um, uh, ha have lesser population densities in the field, but then also potentially interacting with herbicide programs to have synergy to, to have greater suppression. So, um, but at the very least, we are seeing a, a, a significant impact on a number of our big problems, uh, herbicide resistant biotypes like you know, different pigweed species, for example. Great. So um, in, in the research that takes place across so many different states, how are you seeing, um, what are some of the differences in how growers are using cover crops um, between the different geographic areas? I mean, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, we, you, you um, see the general pattern that certainly as you get further north, you see less and less use of legumes. Uh, you do see as you get further south a lot more diversified cover crop mixtures just because the the legumes will do in Nebraska's will do better in some of these colder climates. So the, the the climate is a big driver of it all. Like how big of a window of an opportunity do you have to get the cover crop in and how uh, hard of a winter do you have has been sort of a big uh, impact. And so we do see that sort of separation from you know mixtures and certainly an emphasis on bigger legumes. And then I'd say that moisture gradients is the other part of what we see a big trend differences on, right? We see like we're, we're regions that have higher soil moisture you know, and precip that's coming into the growing season or that are expected to um, during kind of like that critical time for the cash crops. You do see more and more folks delaying the cover crop termination, trying to either um, delay, you know, close to planting or even planting green. We see more of a trend with those folks to 
to maximize the value and the benefit of the cover crop and some of the services that you can get because they also have the um the water there to support that growth um and and so like you and we see big differences you know from the mid-atlantic region to southeast or south central all the way as you get down to north central and go west that those those moisture gradients have big impacts on the, the the duration of time that folks are leaving the covers in the field and then whether or not they're going to ex, you know explore or work with you know planting green options okay so um have you seen anything about how the lushness of that cover crop in different parts of a field uh, might affect the soil nitrogen levels in different parts of the field? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we in agriculture, this is always our, our, our challenge, right, is that we, we don't have this uniform field. Most of our fields are highly spatially variable. Uh, we often have a lot of topography in our farm fields and that creates micro drainages that you can have wetter areas and drier areas and, and that will have impact on the growth and development of the cover crop, as well as, you know, you can have hot spots of fertility or organic matter in fields. And so all of these are sort of influenced by a number of uh, factors, um, but topography uh, is certainly a big one of those. And, and so that will give you spatial variability in your cover crop performance. And so that, I mean, you could easily see in a farm, in a field spots where you have like just three, 400, you know, pounds per acre of biomass, you know, all the way up to three to 4,000 pounds per acre of biomass. Those are huge ranges in performance of the cover. Um, so that's going to have big impact on how much nitrogen it's scavenging, first of all, in the fall and early spring when it's growing, uh, but also can have implications on the nutrients that are released uh, from that cover crop, uh, as well as obviously impact on the water dynamics um, and the weed suppression, right? So all of these kind of benefits of covers that really come from having a, a bigger cover crop, uh, th those extreme differences in the fields is what creates really pro big problems for just having a uniform management. And so we're, we're really advocating and hoping that we can do continue to provide a role in, in mapping cover crop performance in the fields and giving high, you know, uh, resolution maps of that spatial performance so that it can then help growers with putting their inputs out, you know, in a variable way, right? So applying, you know, their crop populations or fertilizers or herbicide programs uh, differently across the field. Before we get back to the conversation, I'd like to thank our sponsor, TerraSym by New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting the Strip Hill Farmer podcast series. Want to do more in 2022? Now available in convenient planter box application, TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics is proven by Bex 2021 PFR to improve yield by 2.7 bushels per acre in soybeans and 4.6 bushels per acre in corn. It also nets $20,000 more in incremental income with every 1,000 acres planted. To calculate your ROI and purchase TerraSim for only $4.35 per acre, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Now here's Stephen Mursky once again. So what are you finding in all the, in this research that will help increase the adoption of cover crops? Oh boy. <laughs> that's a that's a big one. Um, so, 
obviously, uh, you know, the economics of cover crops is it plays a huge role, and and there's a, a fair bit of of evaluations from socioeconomic uh, reports that have come out over the years to to emphasize that it's not just economics. There's a lot of factors that drive adoption. You know, the complexity that goes into management it introduces more complexity, so it's more cognitive burden, things that to have to uh, deal with. Right? There's a lot more moving parts in the system that. And that complexity, you know, can build fatigue. And so that's another uh, reason. Um, but uh, we've certainly tried to focus on all of those things, right? We're trying to focus on the simplicity of management. We've tried to focus on making it more economical. I mean, it, it's an additional cost in the system. And the realities of it is, is, is that it's not always going to have a return on investment economically, right? Like it's not, there's been, Cover cropping is not a one-to-one relationship with increasing yields. It could be better yield stability or resilience over time. It could be um, some years reduced nutrient inputs. It could be some years better uh, resilience to droughts or floods, but those are not annual uh, dynamics. And so economics can be a, a real challenging one to overcome for a lot of growers. And you know, certainly we've seen like I'm in the state of Maryland where there's a cost share program. So we have tremendous adoption and use of cover crops because of state-based incentive programs. And we are seeing more and more um, the pr- private industry and um, um, the federal government incentivize more and more uh, cover crop practices, which helps take some of that economic burden off. But um, I, I guess I, I made the point that it's that economics is certainly a key challenge Um Management complexity is 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 a key challenge as well. Um, so I think those are sort of the two big ones. So um, how can cover crops enable growers to maybe plant earlier during some of the unusually wet springs that we've been having in the past few years? Yeah. So you know, cover crops are doing two things in the spring, right? They're they're using water, they're transpiring. And, and so there is that water use helps dry down that soil some. And so we're having something growing, uh, at least get some moisture reduction in, in, the, in the soil to help um, enable farmers to get into the fields a little earlier after rain events. What it's also doing though, when you have a well-established cover crop is, is those roots and those crowns uh, are often creating a rigidity there that is sort of uh, a buffer against the compaction that can happen from tires, tracks and from the field equipment. So that even if if the wet, that field is a little wetter than you would get in, that you would want to go into a, a bare field because you have this sort of mat there that's helping to reduce some of the compaction of the uh, the equipment, it helps you give a, little, a few more workable days. And there are a number of folks who have been calculating this. I, I kind of am eager to see what, where that is playing out across the country. There's going to be probably really good information coming out that, about that in the next year or two, because there's a lot of people studying that. Uh, but, but it's certainly been a lot, a lot of what we've seen is, is this ability to both dry down the spring dynamics faster, but then also create a you know, resistance to compaction. So kind of on the the other side of that coin, how do cover crops help increase the drought tolerance of cash crops? Oh, I love this question. Uh, You know, this really is something that um, our team is doing really well. So the Precision Sustainable Ag Network has uh, an extensive distributed network of water sensors all across farms 
throughout the eastern half of the U.S. and um, on farms that have big strips of cover crop and no cover crop. And so we're monitoring the, the rates of water infiltration and storage. And we're doing this, you know, on a, a range of different management. So farmers are allowed to manage their covers however they want. They can have small covers, big covers, mixtures, monocultures, um, and uh, killing it early, killing it late, so to speak. And um, we're able to track any one rain event and how it behaves in that, those systems, the presence or absence of a cover crop. You know, so like if you... Um, have a cover crop there um, versus you don't, one of the things that we're seeing is, is that it can you know, greatly um, reduce the, um, the, um, the compaction that sort of comes from a rain event, right? When a, when, when a hard rain can come in hard and fast, it can sort of smear the surface of the soil and compact the surface of the soil a little bit that, it, that you can end up resulting in more uh, run, uh, runoff of that water, less infiltration and storage. And so their cover crop sort of acts as this energy reducer, so to speak, from this the, the gravitational forces that are coming from raindrops, right? And so early on in the season, when the cover crop is growing, sure, that's using water. But once a cover crop is terminated and it's got that surface cover, before the cash crop canopies, like, you know, so like some point, you know, in the, you know, four to six weeks after planting your cash crop, it's going to completely canopy and it'll it'll sort of provide that same result, right, with when, when the rain falls. But early on, when it, that crop hasn't canopy, you've got this cover crop mulch there that's sort of, you know, increasing the amount of water that infiltrates and stores in the soil. And so if you're going to go into a droughty summer, and you've got this nice mulch that's been helping with reducing the runoff, you've, you've sort of banked more water into that system. Plus, by having that surface mulch there, you've also are keeping the soil temperatures cooler. You know, you're preventing the sun from sitting right on that soil surface. And, and that in itself has a huge benefit in reducing sort of your evapotranspiration uh, rates as well. So there's sort of a number of ways that, that cover crops can increase water infiltration and storage going into what we would generally find as the, the droughtier part of the year, right, the summer. So you're sort of banking a little bit more water. Now, it really depends on the climate, whether that's a net gain or an, or is it just a you know a zero sum game or is it a net negative if you're in a region that has a really dry spring and you're growing a cover crop and drawing down your water the mulch of that cover crop might not really ever get you right in increasing water infiltration and having that kind of drought resistance in the summertime uh, but if you're in regions where you tend to get decent like spring moisture and it dries up in the summertime which is what is a lot of the climate models are suggesting, which is wetter springs, drier summers, and we've seen a fair bit of that, you're going to end up seeing a lot of times where that cover crop is, is giving you that net benefit in the summertime of overall water storage in the soil profile. I know that's a long answer. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> it took, took a while to get out. but that No, that's did. great. Yeah. So kind of building on, on what you were just talking about, how does climate interact with cover crop management and growers' cover crop decisions? You know, climate is everything, right? <laughs> it's it's uh, the farmers are constantly doing this multiple variable analysis in their heads all the time about what they're going to do and when they're going to do it, and it comes you know from living on a weather report all day, right? So they're always checking the weather uh, to in, to inform decisions and and sort of went out where they can ahead or, be, you know, um, or after a given rain event. And, and so 
um, just being able to fit your management in is a big part of this. Um, you know, whether it's having wet falls and being able to get in the fields to plant your cover crops or whether you're going to aerial seed or directly drill that seed um, to, you know, the, the workable days we talked about in the spring that you can potentially help dry out the soil or, or get into the field earlier uh, to what I just said about, you know, greater potential water infiltration in the summertime. All of these things are sort of affected by the time of the year, how much rain you're getting, what kind of cover crops you have in your field, the cash crop you're using. So um, it's a lot of factors at play and, and uh, you know, farmers are, 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 you know, always out there making all of their decisions contingent on these kinds of climatic dynamics. Okay. Um, so how can cover crops play a role in integrated fertility management? Cover crops um, are not a one-size-fits-all model, right? I mean, we have cereal cover crops. Let's just use those, for example. They're not putting new nitrogen into the system. Uh, they will scavenge nitrogen in the fall, for example, and they will retain nutrients. And the idea is that they cycle them and they return them back the following growing season so that it helps tighten up your nutrients. So uh, people are always asking, you know, can I reduce my nitrogen? Can I have more of a, uh, you know, lower uh, inputs? Uh, how do I adjust my end rates based on my cover crops? I, I, the general message that I've been saying to folks based on many, many years of experience of looking at the decomposition and nutrient release of cover crops is that don't expect much nitrogen from your cereal cover crops. They're not, you're not planting cereal cover crops to store a bunch of nutrients in the fall and give them back to you in the summertime. That's just not a thing. And you're not getting that much nitrogen during the growing season from a cereal cover crop. Um, you are slowly over time building up your soil organic matter potentially, um, or at least some labile fractions of soil organic matter that um, provide some levels of, of increase in the overall nitrogen that's released during the growing season, albeit, you know, not a lot, but, but you're slowly increasing it and that will create more buffer against nutrient deficiencies in a field. Now, legumes are obviously a totally different equation. They are not only bringing um, a lot of new nitrogen into the system, but it's at such high levels that, you know, you can really see impact on your fertilizer bill, right? So, you know, if you're getting good legume cover crops, you can greatly reduce your nitrogen uh, inputs, for example. Um, and so a lot of farmers are exploring, you know, strategies for managing cover crops and where, how they fit legumes in there. Legumes are sort of a challenge in a lot of regions to get it well-established and, and to get high performance, but uh, a well-managed uh, legume cover crop can often give you easily, you know, 50 to, to 100 pounds of nitrogen during the growing season. So it, it can be substantial. So we're, we're trying to provide sort of adaptive nitrogen recommendations to growers and that helping them get a sense of how much nitrogen they're going to get from their covers, um, how much nitrogen they need to additionally apply to meet the needs of the cash crop, and, and, and then trying to give them eventually more spatial information, right? Like that's sort of the putting the precision and sustainable that if we can know that we have parts of the field that have high cover crop performance and potentially higher nitrogen, can we adjust our nitrogen rates throughout the field to reflect the benefits of the cover crop? I think that would be a great uh, win for growers. Well, thanks so much, Steve. We are out of time for today. Um, where can our listeners go for more information about some of the research and work that you're doing? 
Well, I, I strongly encourage folks uh, interested in cover crops to go to their regional cover crop councils. Those are the one-stop shop for cover crop information. The Northeast, the Southern, the Midwest, the Western, these are all regional councils that are providing extensive outreach materials. They're, we're developing decision support tools collectively and independently um, with a whole host of recommendation systems all around species selection, seeding rates, uh, we have tools around economics coming out. We have tools on nitrogen coming out and water management. And um, those regional councils are just incredible, both for um, you know going to their annual conferences and activities when those occur, as well as just going to the websites or using the materials. They really represent some of the most robust and rigorous uh, information around cover crops and management. Great. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. This has been fantastic, Steve. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. I wish you all well. Thanks to Stephen Mursky and Sarah Hill for today's conversation. How do you incorporate cover crops into your operation? Do you make site-specific adjustments? Let me know by emailing mplockner at lessonermedia.com or calling 262-777-2441. If you're looking for more podcasts about strip till, visit striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts, or check out our episode library wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, many thanks to Terrasim by New Leaf Symbiotics for helping to make this strip till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Pogner. Thanks for listening.